Book Two, Chapter Thirty Three of the Bostonians, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicholas Clifford. The Bostonians, Volume Two by Henry James, Chapter Thirty Three. Come out with me, Miss Tarrant. Come out with me. Do come out with me. That was what Basil Ransom had been saying to Verena when they stood where Olive perceived them, in the embrasure of the window. It had, of course, taken considerable talk to lead up to this, for the tone, even more than the words, indicated a large increase of intimacy. Verena was mindful of this when he spoke, and it frightened her a little, made her uneasy, which was one of the reasons why she got up from her chair and went to the window an inconsequent movement, inasmuch as her wish was to impress upon him that it was impossible she should comply with his request. It would have served this end much better for her to sit very firmly in her place. He made her nervous and restless. She was beginning to perceive that he produced a peculiar effect upon her. Certainly she had been out with him at home the very first time he called upon her, but it seemed to her to make an important difference that she herself should then have proposed the walk, simply because it was the easiest thing to do when a person came to see you in Monadnock Place. They had gone out that time because she wanted to, not because he did. And then it was one thing for her to stroll with them around Cambridge, where she knew every step and had the confidence and freedom which came from being on her own ground, and the pretext, which was perfectly natural, of wanting to show him the colleges, and quite another thing to go wandering with him through the streets of this great strange city, which, attractive, delightful as it was, had not the suitableness even of being his home, not his real one. He wanted to show her something, he wanted to show her everything, but she was not sure now, after an hour's talk, that she particularly wanted to see anything more than he could show her. He had shown her a great deal while he sat there, especially what balderdash he thought it, the whole idea of women's being equal to men. He seemed to have come only for that, for he was all the while revolving round it. She couldn't speak of anything but what he brought it back to the question of some new truth like that. He didn't say so in so many words. On the contrary, he was tremendously insinuating and satirical and pretended to think she had proved all and a great deal more than she wanted to prove. But his exaggeration, and the way he wrung all the changes on two or three of the points she had made at Mrs. Burridge's, were just the sign that he was a scoffer of scoffers. He wouldn't do anything but laugh. He seemed to think that he might laugh at her all day without her taking offence. Well, he might if it amused him but she didn't see why she should ramble round New York with him to give him his opportunity. She had told him, and she had told Olive, that she was determined to produce some effect on him. But now, suddenly, she felt differently about that. She ceased to care whether she produced any effect or not. She didn't see why she should take him so seriously when he wouldn't take her so, that is, wouldn't take her ideas. She had guessed before that he didn't want to discuss them, this had been in her mind when she said to him at Cambridge that his interest in her was personal, not controversial. Then she had simply meant that as an inquiring young Southerner he had wanted to see what a bright New England girl was like, but since then it had become a little more clear to her. 
Her short talk with Ransom at Mrs. Burridge's threw some light upon the question, what the personal interest of a young Southerner, however inquiring merely, might amount to. Did he, too, want to make love to her? The idea made Verena rather impatient, weary in advance. The thing she desired least in the world was to be put into the wrong with Olive, for she had certainly given her ground to believe, not only in their scene the night before, which was a simple repetition, but all along from the very first, that she really had an interest which would transcend any attraction coming from such a source as that. If yesterday it seemed to her that she should like to struggle with Mr. Ransom, to refute and convince him, she had this morning gone into the parlour to receive him, with the idea that, now they were alone together in a quiet, favourable place, he would perhaps take up the different points of her dress, one by one, as several gentlemen had done after hearing her on other occasions. There was nothing she liked so well as that, and Olive never had anything to say against it. But he hadn't taken up anything. He had simply laughed and chaffed, and unrolled a string of queer fancies about the delightful way women would fix things when, as she said in her address, they should get out of their box. He kept talking about the box. He seemed as if he wouldn't let go of that simile. He said that he had come to look at her through the glass sides, and if he wasn't afraid of hurting her, he would smash them in. He was determined to find the key that would open it, if he had to look for it all over the world. It was tantalizing only to be able to talk to her through the keyhole. If he didn't want to take up the subject, he at least wanted to take her up, to keep his hand upon her as long as he could. Verena had had no such sensation since the first day she went in to see Olive Chancellor, when she felt herself plucked from the earth and borne aloft. It's the most lovely day, and I should like so much to show you New York, as you showed me your beautiful Harvard, Basil Ransom went on, pressing her to accede to his proposal. You said that was the only thing you could do for me then, and so this is the only thing I can do for you here. It would be odious to see you go away, giving me nothing but this stiff little talk in a boarding-house parlour. Mercy, if you call this stiff, Verena exclaimed, laughing while at that moment Olive passed out of the house, and descended the steps before her eyes. "'My poor cousin's stiff. She won't turn her head a hair's breadth to look at us,' said the young man. Olive's figure, as she went by, was, for Verena, full of a queer, touching, tragic expression, saying ever so many things, both familiar and strange, and Basil Ransom's companion privately remarked how little men knew about women or indeed about what was really delicate, that he, without any cruel intention, should attach an idea of ridicule to such an incarnation of the pathetic, should speak rough derisive words about it. Ransom, in truth, to-day, was not disposed to be very scrupulous, and he only wanted to get rid of Olive Chancellor, whose image at last decidedly bothered and bored him. He was glad to see her go, but that was not sufficient. She would come back quick enough. The place itself contained her, expressed her. For to-day he wanted to take possession of Verena, to carry her to a distance, to reproduce a little the happy conditions they had enjoyed the day of his visit to Cambridge. And the fact that in the nature of things it could only be for to-day made his desire more keen, more full of purpose. 
He had thought over the whole question in the last forty-eight hours, and it was his belief that he saw things in their absolute reality. He took a greater interest in her than he had taken in any one yet, but he proposed, after to-day, not to let that accident make any difference. This was precisely what gave its high value to the present limited occasion. He was too shamefully poor, too shabbily and meagerly equipped, to have the right to talk of marriage to a girl in Verena's very peculiar position. He understood now how good that position was from a worldly point of view. Her address at Mrs. Burridge's gave him something definite to go upon, showed him what she could do, that people would flock in thousands to an exhibition of so charming, and small blame to them, that she might easily have a big career, like that of a distinguished actress or singer, and that she would make money in quantities only slightly smaller than performers of that kind. Who wouldn't pay half a dollar for such an hour as he had passed at Mrs. Burridge's? The sort of thing she was able to do, to say, was an article for which there was more and more demand. Fluent, pretty, third-rate palaver, conscious or unconscious perfected humbug, the stupid, gregarious, gullible public, the enlightened democracy of his native land, could swallow unlimited draughts of it. He was sure she could go like that for several years, with her portrait in the druggist's windows, and her posters on the fences, and during that time would make a fortune sufficient to keep her in affluence for evermore. I shall perhaps expose our young man to the contempt of superior minds, if I say that all this seemed to him an insuperable impediment to his making up to Verena. His scruples were doubtless begotten of a false pride, a sentiment in which there was a thread of moral tinsel, as there was in the southern idea of chivalry. But he felt ashamed of his own poverty, the positive flatness of his situation, when he thought of the gilded nimbus that surrounded the protégé of Mrs. Burridge. This shame was possible to him even while he was conscious of what a mean business it was to practice upon human imbecility, how much better it was even to be seedy and obscure, discouraged about oneself. He had been born to the prospect of a fortune and in spite of the years of misery that followed the war, had never rid himself of the belief that a gentleman who desired to unite himself to a charming girl couldn't yet ask her to come and live with him in sordid conditions. On the other hand, it was no possible basis of matrimony that Verena should continue for his advantage the exercise of her remunerative profession. If he should become her husband, he should know a way to strike her dumb. In the midst of this, an irrepressible desire urged him on to taste, for once deeply, all that he was condemned to lose, or at any rate forbidden to attempt to gain. To spend a day with her, and not to see her again, that presented itself to him at once as the least and the most that was possible. He did not need even to remind himself that young Mr. Burridge was able to offer her everything he lacked including the most amiable adhesion to her views. "'It will be charming in the park to-day. Why not take a stroll with me there, as I did with you in that little park at Harvard?' he asked, when Olive had disappeared. "'Oh, I have seen it very well in every corner. A friend of mine kindly took me to drive there yesterday,' Verena said. "'A friend? Do you mean Mr. Burridge?' And Ransom stood looking at her with his extraordinary eyes. 
Of course, I haven't a vehicle to drive you in, but we can sit on a bench and talk. She didn't say it was Mr. Burridge, but she was unable to say it was not, and something in her face showed him that he had guessed. So he went on. Is it only with him you can go out? Won't he like it, and may you only do what he likes? Mrs. Luna told me he wants to marry you, and I saw at his mother's how he stuck to you. If you are going to marry him, you can drive with him every day in the year, and that's just a reason for your giving me an hour or two now, before it becomes impossible. He didn't mind much what he said. It had been his plan not to mind much today, and so long as he made her do what he wanted, he didn't care how he did it. But he saw that his words brought the color to her face. She stared, surprised at his freedom and familiarity. He went on, dropping the hardness, the irony of which he was conscious, out of his tone. I know it's no business of mine whom you marry, or even whom you drive with, and I beg your pardon if I seem indiscreet and obtrusive, but I would give anything just to detach you a little from your ties, your belongings, and feel for an hour or two as if, as if, and he paused. As if what? she asked very seriously. As if there were no such person as Mr. Burridge, as Miss Chancellor, in the whole place. This had not been what he was going to say. He used different words. I don't know what you mean, why you speak of other persons. I can do as I like, perfectly. But I don't know why you should take so for granted that that would be it. Verena spoke these words, not out of coquetry, or to make him beg her more for a favour, but because she was thinking and she wanted to gain a moment. His allusion to Henry Burridge touched her, his belief that she had been in the park under circumstances more agreeable than those he proposed. They were not. Somehow she wanted him to know that. To wander there with a companion, slowly stopping, lounging, looking at the animals as she had seen the people do the day before, to sit down in some out-of-the-way part where there were distant views, which she had noticed from her high perch beside Henry Burridge. She had to look down so, it made her feel unduly fine. That was much more to her taste, much more her idea of true enjoyment. It came over her that Mr. Ransom had given up his work to come to her at such an hour. People of his kind in the morning were always getting their living and it was only for Mr. Burridge that it didn't matter, inasmuch as he had no profession. Mr. Ransom simply wanted to give up his whole day. That pressed upon her. She was, as the most good-natured girl in the world, too entirely tender not to feel any sacrifice that was made for her. She had always done everything that people asked. Then, if Olive should make that strange arrangement for her to go to Mrs. Burridge's, he would take it as a proof that there was something serious between her and the gentleman of the house, in spite of anything she might say to the contrary. Moreover, if she should go, she wouldn't be able to receive Mr. Ransom there. Olive would trust her not to, and she must certainly, in future, not disappoint Olive, nor keep anything back from her, whatever she might have done in the past. Besides, she didn't want to do that. She thought it much better not. It was this idea of the episode which was possibly in store for her in New York, and from which her present companion would be so completely excluded, that worked upon her now with a rapid transition, urging her to grant him what he asked, so that in advance she should have made up 
for what she might not do for him later. But most of all she disliked his thinking she was engaged to someone. She didn't know, it is true, why she should mind it. And indeed at this moment our young lady's feelings were not in any way clear to her. She did not see what was the use of letting her acquaintance with Mr. Ransom become much closer, since his interest did really seem personal. And yet she presently asked him why he wanted her to go out with him, and whether there was anything particular he wanted to say to her. There was no one like Verena for making speeches apparently flirtatious, with the best faith and the most innocent attention in the world. As if that would not be precisely a reason to make it well, she should get rid of him altogether. Of course I have something particular to say to you. I have a tremendous lot to say to you, the young man exclaimed. Far more than I can say in this stuck-up, confined room, which is public, too, so that anyone may come in from one moment to another. Besides, he added sophistically, it isn't proper for me to pay a visit of three hours. Verena did not take up the sophistry, nor ask him whether it would be more proper for her to ramble about the city with him for an equal period. She only said, "'Is it something that I shall care to hear, or that will do me any good?' "'Well, I hope it will do you good, but I don't suppose you will care much to hear it.' Basil Ransom hesitated a moment, smiling at her. Then he went on. "'It's to tell you, once for all, how much I really do differ from you. He said this at a venture, but it was a happy inspiration. If it was only that, Verena thought she might go, for that was not personal. Well, I'm glad you care so much, she answered musingly. But she had another scruple still, and she expressed it in saying that she should like Olive very much to find her when she came in. That's all very well, Ransom returned. But does she think that she only has a right to go out? Does she expect you to keep house because she's abroad? If she stays out long enough, she will find you when she comes in. Her going out that way, it proves that she trusts me, Verena said, with a candor which alarmed her as soon as she had spoken. Her alarm was just, for Basil Ransom instantly caught up her words with a great mocking amazement. Trust you? And why shouldn't she trust you? Are you a little girl of ten, and she your governess? Haven't you any liberty at all, and is she always watching you and holding you to an account? Have you such vagabond instincts that you are only thought safe when you are between four walls?" Ransom was going on to speak in the same tone, of her having felt it necessary to keep Olive in ignorance of his visit to Cambridge, a fact they had touched on, by implication, in their short talk at Mrs. Burridge's. But in a moment he saw that he had said enough. As for Verena, she had said more than she meant, and the simplest way to unsay it was to go and get her bonnet and jacket, and let him take her where he liked. Five minutes later he was walking up and down the parlour, waiting while she prepared herself to go out. They went up to the central park by the elevated railway, and Verena reflected as they proceeded that anyway Olive was probably disposing of her somehow at Mrs. Burridge's, and that therefore there wasn't much harm in her just taking this little run on her own responsibility, especially as she should only be out an hour, which would be just the duration of Olive's absence. The beauty of the elevated was that it took you up to the park and brought you back in a few minutes, 
and you had all the rest of the hour to walk about and see the place. It was so pleasant now that one was glad to see it twice over. The long, narrow enclosure, across which the houses and the streets that border it look at each other with their glittering windows, bristled with the raw delicacy of April, and in spite of its rockwork grottoes and tunnels, its pavilions and statues, its too numerous paths and pavements, lakes too big for the landscape, and bridges too big for the lakes, expressed all the fragrance and freshness of the most charming moment of the year. Once Verena was fairly launched, the spirit of the day took possession of her. She was glad to have come, she forgot about Olive, enjoyed the sense of wandering in the great city, with a remarkable young man who would take beautiful care of her, while no one else in the world knew where she was. It was very different from her drive yesterday with Mr. Burridge, but it was more free, more intense, more full of amusing incident and opportunity. She could stop and look at everything now, and indulge all her curiosities, even the most childish. She could feel as if she were out for the day, though she was not really, as she had not done since she was a little girl, when in the country once or twice, when her father and mother had drifted into summer quarters, gone out of town like people of fashion, she had, with a chance companion, strayed far from home, spent hours in the woods and fields, looking for raspberries, and playing she was a gypsy. Basil Ransom had begun with proposing, strenuously, that she should come somewhere and have luncheon. He had brought her out half an hour before that meal was served in West Tenth Street, and he maintained that he owed her the compensation of seeing that she was properly fed. He knew a very quiet, luxurious French restaurant near the top of the Fifth Avenue. He didn't tell her that he knew it through having once lunched there in company with Mrs. Luna. Verena, for the present, declined his hospitality, said she was going to be out so short a time it wasn't worth the trouble. She should not be hungry. Luncheon to her was nothing. She would eat when she went home. When he pressed her, she said she would see later, perhaps, if she should find she wanted something. She would have liked immensely to go with him to an eating-house, and yet with this she was afraid, just as she was rather afraid at bottom, and in the intervals of her quick pulsations of amusement, of the whole expedition, not knowing why she had come, though it made her happy, and reflecting that there was really nothing Mr. Ransom could have to say to her that would concern her closely enough. He knew what he intended about her sharing the noonday repast with him somehow. It had been part of his plan that she should sit opposite him at a little table, taking her napkin out of its curious folds, sit there, smiling back at him, while he said to her certain things that hummed, like memories of tunes, in his fancy, and they waited till something extremely good, and a little vague, chosen out of a French carte, was brought to them. That was not at all compatible with her going home at the end of half an hour, as she seemed to expect to. They visited the animals in the little zoological garden which forms one of the attractions of the central park. They observed the swans in the ornamental water, and they even considered the question of taking a boat for half an hour, Ransom saying that they needed this to make their visit complete. Verena replied that she didn't see why it should be complete, and after having threaded the devious ways of the ramble, 
lost themselves in the maze, and admired all the statues and busts of great men with which the grounds are decorated, they contented themselves with resting on a sequestered bench, where, however, there was a pretty glimpse of the distance, and an occasional stroller creaked by on the asphalt walk. They had had by this time a great deal of talk, none of which, nevertheless, had been serious to Verena's view. Mr. Ransom continued to joke about everything, including the emancipation of women. Verena, who had always lived with people who took the world very earnestly, had never encountered such a power of disparagement, or heard so much sarcasm levelled at the institutions of her country and the tendencies of the age. At first she replied to him, contradicted, showed a high spirit of retort, turning his irreverence against himself. She was too quick and ingenious not to be able to think of something to oppose, talking in a fanciful strain, to almost everything he said. But little by little she grew weary and rather sad, brought up, as she had been, to admire new ideas, to criticize the social arrangements that one met almost everywhere, and to disapprove of a great many things, she had yet never dreamed of such a wholesale arraignment as Mr. Ransom's, so much bitterness as she saw lurking beneath his exaggerations, his misrepresentations. She knew he was an intense conservative, but she didn't know that being a conservative could make a person so aggressive and unmerciful. She thought conservatives were only smug and stubborn and self-complacent, satisfied with what actually existed. But Mr. Ransom didn't seem any more satisfied with what existed than with what she wanted to exist, and he was ready to say worse things about some of those whom she would have supposed to be on his own side than she thought it right to say about almost any one. She ceased, after a while, to care to argue with him, and wondered what could have happened to him to make him so perverse. Probably something had gone wrong in his life. He had had some misfortune that coloured his whole view of the world. He was a cynic. She had often heard about that state of mind, though she had never encountered it, for all the people she had seen only cared, if possible, too much. Of Basil Ransom's personal history, she knew only what Olive had told her, and that was but a general outline which left plenty of room for private dramas, secret disappointments, and sufferings. As she sat there beside him, she thought of some of these things, asked herself whether they were what he was thinking of when he said, for instance, that he was sick of all the modern cant about freedom, and had no sympathy with those who wanted an extension of it. What was needed for the good of the world was that people should make a better use of the liberty they possessed. Such declarations as this took Verena's breath away. She didn't suppose you could hear anyone say such a thing as that in the nineteenth century, even the least advanced. It was of a piece with his denouncing the spread of education. He thought the spread of education a gigantic farce people stuffing their heads with a lot of empty catchwords that prevented them from doing their work quietly and honestly. You had a right to an education only if you had an intelligence, and if you looked at the matter with any desire to see things as they are, you soon perceived that an intelligence was a very rare luxury, the attribute of one person in a hundred. He seemed to take a pretty low view of humanity, anyway. Verena hoped that something really bad had happened to him, 
not by way of gratifying any resentment he aroused in her nature, but to help herself to forgive him for so much contempt and brutality. She wanted to forgive him, for after they had sat on their bench half an hour, and his jesting mood had abated a little, so that he talked with more consideration, as it seemed, and more sincerity, a strange feeling came over her, a perfect willingness not to keep insisting on her own side, and a desire not to part from him with a mere accentuation of their differences. Strange, I call the nature of her reflections, for they softly battled with each other as she listened in the warm, still air, touched with the far-away hum of the immense city, to his deep, sweet, distinct voice, expressing monstrous opinions with exotic cadences and mild familiar laughs, which, as he leaned towards her, almost tickled her cheek and ear. It seemed to her strangely harsh, almost cruel, to have brought her out only to say to her things, which, after all, free as she was to contradict them, and tolerant as she always tried to be, could only give her pain. Yet there was a spell upon her as she listened. It was in her nature to be easily submissive, to like being overborne. She could be silent when people insisted, and silent without acrimony. Her whole relation to Olive was a kind of tacit, tender assent to passionate insistence, and if this had ended by being easy and agreeable to her, and indeed had never been anything else, it may be supposed that the struggle of yielding to a will which she felt to be stronger even than Olive's was not of long duration. Ransom's will had the effect of making her linger, even while she knew the afternoon was going on, that Olive would have come back and found her still absent, and would have been submerged again in the bitter waves of anxiety. She saw her, in fact, as she must be at that moment, posted at the window of her room in Tenth Street, watching for some sign of her return, listening for her step on the staircase, her voice in the hall. Verena looked at this image as at a painted picture, perceived all it represented, every detail. If it didn't move her more, make her start to her feet, dart away from Basil Ransom, and hurry back to her friend, this was because the very torment to which she was conscious of subjecting that friend made her say to herself that it must be the very last. This was the last time she could ever sit by Mr. Ransom, and hear him express himself in a manner that interfered so with her life. The ordeal had been so personal and so complete that she forgot for the moment it was also the first time it had occurred. It might have been going on for months. She was perfectly aware that it could bring them to nothing, for one must lead one's own life. It was impossible to lead the life of another, especially when that other was so different, so arbitrary and unscrupulous. End of chapter 33